Holy Week. I, I think somebody shared with me this morning that uh, in Korea they call this Suffering Week. Does that sound right? Okay. I thought, oh, these things go together well, actually. Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday today is when we commemorate and commence that most important week in human history, Suffering Week, Holy Week. It was on this day, Palm Sunday, that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem with a festive caravan of worshipers and an an event known as the Triumphal Entry. Remember this? They're waving palm branches and they're crying out, even the children Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees stop Jesus and they say, hey, tell these people to stop doing this. And Jesus says, if they stop, the rocks are going to start to cry out. This is a, a serious celebration as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And it was only a matter of days before he would be dead, crucified. It's a week that seemed to start off very, very well and a week that seemed to end very, very poorly. A colossal failure. Or was it? And it just depends on whether or not we are tracking with what God was trying to accomplish through that week. What God was trying to accomplish through that apparent failure. Last year, as I'm sure you remember, from my previous Palm Sunday sermon, we talked about uh, some of the things that Jesus was accomplishing in Holy Week. We talked about how things are not as they appear during this strange turn of events where Jesus rides in in celebration and then ends the week with crucifixion. We talked about how the apparent failure was actually a great success and that it was part of some great plan that God had to establish a kingdom and to do good for his people. And this year I want to kind of keep probing this question of what was God doing through the death of Jesus Christ? Because I want us to remember the significance of the events that we're thinking about this week during Holy Week. What was happening as Jesus was going towards and experiencing his cross? In other words, I just want to take another look from another angle at the gospel diamond. And I want to do it by going to Psalm 15. So we're going to start there today. Psalm 15, verse 1, goes like this, as we just read. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It's a, it's a question. Two questions. It's basically the same question. You've got some Hebrew parallelism taking place here. David asks this question, who's permitted to sojourn? Who's permitted to stay within? Who's permitted to dwell within God's tent? Which is a reference to the tabernacle, which which housed the Ark of the Covenant in Israel. And it was the holy place in which God's presence resided in the midst of Israel until the temple was built by David's son Solomon. Who can reside in this tabernacle? Who can sojourn in your tent? And then he asked it again. It's it's essentially repeated in the second half of the verse. 
Who shall dwell on your holy hill? This is a reference to the Temple Mount. This is where the temple is going to be built by David's son Solomon. David apparently already has an awareness that the Temple Mount is the future site of a holy place. The temple will replace the tabernacle. The ark will go from the holy place in the temple into the holy place. I'm sorry, from the holy place in the tabernacle into the holy place of the temple. And what David is asking in both of these questions is the same. Who can be in the presence of God? Who can be in the presence? Who can dwell in the presence? Who can dwell within, sojourn within? Who can be in God's presence? Who can be in God's house? And the answer to that question is provided by the rest of the psalm. So we're just going to go there. And I want you to see that in verse 2, David provides for us basically the summary of everything he's about to say. Who can dwell in the presence of God? Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Or the word could be does righteousness. He who walks blamelessly, the person who does righteousness, that's the person who can be in the presence of God. That's kind of the foundation of everything else that David's going to say here. So let's unpack it. What does it mean to be blameless? What does it mean to walk in righteousness? And I want you to see some of the specifics of what that might look like as David describes it here. Notice in verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. Got two contexts for speaking truth. Got the person who's speaking truth in their heart, and then in public, the things that they say with their mouth doesn't tear down other people with lies, slander. You've got a truth person. This is a person who's not speaking lies. They're not mumbling under their breath. Lies under their breath. Things that aren't true under their breath. Is there in our lives the battle for inner integrity? So that in, in, inside, we are people who love the truth. People who speak the truth. Does the inside of my life conform to the outer claims of my life? Or do I speak and think and feel things in here in a way that reflects an alternative reality on the inside? Do you have a secret inner life that does not conform to God's truth? Could this be said of you? What you see is what you get. I speak the truth on the inside as well. In my heart, I'm speaking truth. And in public as well. The righteous person has that conformity between the inner and the outer reality so that his tongue doesn't create distortions about other people. Slander. Do you speak the truth? Verse 3. Does not slander with his tongue. Here's what else the blameless person does. Does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This person does no evil to his neighbor. Just catch this for a second. Consider your kids and your wife or your husband part of your neighborhood. (laughs) 
These are your neighbors too. Ouch. There's no evil. The righteous person. There's no evil. They're able, this person's able to restrain sinful impulses that would dishonor friends, bring reproach to friends. Verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This is a really interesting verse. This is the kind of verse that, uh, that you want to skip over <laughs> as a pastor, as a preacher. Listen to that. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. You despise vile people? Hmm, doesn't sound much like love your enemy, does it? <laughs> Not to me it doesn't. You've heard people say, okay, here's, here's how we had to think of things. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Anybody ever heard that? You can raise your hand. You ever heard that? Hate the sin, love the sinner. And you read verses like this or other parts of the Old Testament and you think that the motto might go like this. Hate the sin, kill the sinner. And I'm serious too because you go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, death penalty for worshiping the, the sun god. Or Deuteronomy 22, 22 reads like this. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. Hate the sin, kill the sinner. So, this is crazy. And I just want to point out, too, that this is happening under the Mosaic Law, not because God was less loving under the, in, in his uh, administration of the Mosaic Law. It's because there are elements of the Mosaic Law and there are elements of Israelite society that are designed to display God's justice and God's judgment. But it's not like God's character has changed now that Jesus has come. Listen to this verse. This is, this is uh, Revelation chapter 21, so second to last verse of the Bible. John is describing the new Jerusalem. So here is our eternal dwelling place. And here's what John says about the eternal dwelling place. This is the final temple scene. John writes, 21 verse, Revelation 21, verse 27, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. So it's not like God's demand for holiness has changed from Old Covenant to New Covenant. God always has, does, and always will love and demand holiness. We just need to realize that Israel's theocratic society was foreshadowing God's final judgment. That's an important paradigm to catch. Israel's theocratic holy nation was designed to give a picture of God's final judgment. They were called to keep the land pure. Just like the final temple must be kept pure. Nothing can come in that will defile it. So when you read stuff like this in the Old Testament, you need to realize that it was being addressed to a people who were living in a theocracy. And part of the responsibility of the Old Covenant community was to execute God's justice at the social and civic levels. That was, that was the job of an Israelite. So you've got a, a, a vile person in the land. God says, clean it up. 
Sometimes that was death penalty. Now, very important to realize that we are living in a different stage of redemptive history. And in this phase of redemptive history, under the new covenant, God has not called his people, the church, to bring that theocratic rule to the earth, to civic society. And this is a point of discontinuity between the old covenant community and the new covenant community. We're not called to go out and kill the adulterers in society. For us, rather than executing God's justice against our sinful neighbor when they disobey God, God says, I want to use you to share with your sinful neighbor that right now I'm willing to show that person mercy through Jesus Christ. Just like I showed you mercy through Jesus Christ. So the church becomes a proclaimer of the gospel, the good news. For a time, God is withholding his judgment. It's coming, but for a time he's withholding his judgment. And so we proclaim mercy to our neighbors. We don't bring judgment to our neighbors. We don't execute civic judgment upon them. So how does a verse like this apply to us today that's um, that, that's all background so that i can just explain how to get how to understand this crazy sounding verse the righteous person is a person in whose eyes a vile person is despised the way to think of it is to try to identify what this verse tells us about the unchanging nature of god and then align ourselves with god in ways that conform to the responsibilities of the new covenant community God hates what is evil. God loves what is good. It's an unchanging principle of God's holiness. You're seeing it on display in this verse, being addressed to a theocratic society. How do these principles relate to our lives? We should hate what is evil. We should love what is good. We should hate and despise that which destroys the human soul and hate and despise that which destroys healthy human society. We should detest the sinful activity of of ourselves and our people and our city and our nation. Remember just, just a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 13, we looked at Paul making this statement, love does not rejoice with wrongdoing. Same principle. Instead, it rejoices with the truth. And so today, we Christians should be not rejoicing in wrongdoing and rejoicing with the truth. Do you hate what is evil? Do you love what is good? Is your moral compass working? It's a good question. Do you rejoice in things that you ought not rejoice in? Are you blameless and righteous? Second half of verse 4, the righteous person swears to his own hurt and does not change. You keep your word. There's a guy who's made an oath here, swears, and if, if he keeps his promise, it's going to damage him. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost something. The righteous person Keeps it. Keeps his oath. Just like, I mean, just ask that question. My kids, when I say I'm going to do something, my kids go, okay, done. It's going to happen. I tell my wife, she asks me to do something, I say, yeah, I'll take care of it. Is that good as gold? 
their integrity. You keep your word. This person doesn't exact interest. Swears to his own hurt, does not change. There's a person who does not put out his money at interest. Israelites weren't supposed to do that. They, they could do it to foreigners, Deuteronomy 22, I think, 23. They could, do it, they, could, they could lend out money with interest to foreigners, but they couldn't lend out money with interest to their, to their own people. Um, here, here you have a person who's being generous, not being greedy for, for gain. Probably the principle that's at work in Israel there, where God says, "I don't want you to take interest from your from your neighbor. Just help them, help them out." Uh, does not take a bribe against the innocent. People do this kind of stuff so that it benefits them. They know it's going to hurt other people, but they're willing to do it. Notice how it ends: He who does these things shall never be moved. The, the righteous person will never be moved. The blameless person will never be moved. There is a, a, a secure uh, fastening in the presence of God. So who can dwell in the presence of God? That's the question David asks. The answer is only those who are righteous can dwell in the presence of God. And it makes sense because David already made this clear in Psalm 5. He says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And this is what the, this is what, this is part of what the tabernacle and the temple structures were meant to communicate. God is a holy God. He may only be approached by holy people. It's a holiness issue. And the author of Hebrews explains this temple structure. Listen for the holiness language of the temple structure. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. This is Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 3. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. These are just artifacts that are in the the first uh, section of the tabernacle as you go in. It's called the holy, the holy place. Behind the second curtain, okay, so you go in, you're in the holy place. There's some artifacts in there, the table of, or the bread of presence and, and whatnot. You go in to the holy place, there's a curtain, and there's something on the other side of the curtain. Behind the second curtain was a, sec- was a second section called the most holy place. So not only do you have a holy place, you've got a most holy place, or the holy of holies. The priests go regularly into the first section. So you have to be a priest in order to go into the first section. You have to be from the tribe of Levi to go into the first section. Not any Israelite can go in there. Got to be from a certain tribe. They regularly go into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second Only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. This was a holy domain. This temple was holy, sacred ground. 
We cannot enter into the presence of God, into the house of of the Lord, unless we too are holy. It's sacred space. And here's a great question right now. Is this troubling to anybody? I hope so. What happens if unholy people who do unholy things come into the holy house of the Lord? Well, actually, we have a description of it in Ezekiel chapter 8 to 11. And so I'm going to read you some sections. Here's Ezekiel 8, 6. And he said to me, Son of man, so here's God talking to Ezekiel, do you see what they are doing? This is in reference to Israel now. The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. What happens when unholy people come into the holy house of God? They drive me far from my sanctuary. Israel is in love with false gods at this point. They're coming toward the end of their existence as as a geopolitical nation. Their land is filled with the uh, unrighteous fruit of their idolatry. And because of their unholiness, God is going to leave the temple. His sacred domain has been profaned by sinful people. So listen to what Ezekiel says here as he describes God's departure now from the midst of his people. Ezekiel 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord, which is in the form of a cloud, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. The house is a reference to the temple. The glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. These are some sort of heavenly creatures. They've got wings. In this scene, they've got wheels like connected to them or something. Or they're, they're some, There's some structure here. It's a throne. The cherubim have these, these, uh, these wheels. The, the, the glory of the Lord, uh, it, it lit, uh, let's see, it, it goes out from the threshold of the house. It stands over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out and uh, with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of God of the God of Israel was over them. Not in the house. Not in the temple. God is leaving the temple. So he's departed from the temple. He's resting over this throne that's constructed of these heavenly creatures, the cherubim. He's outside the temple entrance, and then Ezekiel 11.22, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of The God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And with this, God is gone. He's left the temple because of the unrighteousness of the people who have profaned his holy place. And when God leaves the temple, it means his favor is not on you. He will not dwell with you. It means he is against you because you have turned against him in favor of other delights. Now, I was just reading through Hosea this week, and this is a brutal passage. Here's what happens when God leaves the midst of his people, when people are outside the presence of God because of their idolatry. Hosea 13.4 I am the Lord your God. 
from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So here, okay, so here's what happened with Israel. God creates a nation, rescues them, creates a nation. They are his people. He is their God. He gives them a land. He does good to them. And they get full. And they forget him. This is our story. This is my story and your story. God was under no obligation to create any of us. He made a world with creatures who were made to dwell in His presence and enjoy Him. And we enjoyed all the delights of His creation and we forgot Him. We forgot Him. Here's what God does to Israel when they forget Him. This is still Hosea 13. So I am to them, therefore they forgot me, so I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. That's called judgment. That's called wrath. The wrath of God. And you know, that's our story too. That is our story. Adam and Eve in Eden, created by God, given the goodness of this world to enjoy. Disobedience. Exile. Judgment. Curse. This is our story. We, we came into this world under the curse of God's judgment upon humanity because of what Adam has done. Israel grew up under the wings of God, forgot Him, disobeyed, was judged, exiled, cursed. Israel's story is our story. The fruit of failing to be righteous is judgment. And rather than God dwelling in the midst of His people to do them good and to bless them with the glory of His eternally satisfying presence, He has become their judge and is executing judgment. And that's why God's demand for righteousness is so very troubling, isn't it? Because you and I both know that Israel was not the only one who has failed to be blameless. Let me ask you this. If God's presence here today were based upon the merits of this last week, your heart, your mind, your actions this last week, if his presence here were based upon the merits of your righteousness this week, would he stay here this afternoon? If you had a bad week, I'm sure in a room this size, some of us did. Would he stay here? Who can dwell in God's tent? Who can dwell on His holy hill? Who can stand in the house of the Lord? Could you? Are you, in the words of David, one who walks blamelessly and does what is right? I want you to know something this afternoon. 
friends. I want you to know that there's not a single person in this room who had a week that was righteous enough to secure God's presence among us here today. Not a single one of us. I also want you to know that God still demands blamelessness and that the only, only the righteous may dwell in the house of the Lord. I want you to know that the holiness of God is incompatible with the sinfulness of humanity and that His judgment rests upon those who are not clean. The Scripture stands true today. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. But I also want you to know and I want you to remember that you don't have to despair at the holiness of God today because of Holy Week. You do not have to despair at the holiness of God because God Himself has looked upon this helpless state of affairs and He felt something. He felt something. God looked at His creatures made in His kindness for the sake of the infinite joy of knowing Him. He looked at this cursed world that's riddled now with sinful and rebellious people. And as He looked at your soul, as He looked at my soul, as He looked at the souls of billions upon billions of men and women and children throughout history now alienated from Him, people who were cast out of Eden, people who are hostile toward Him and worthy to be cast into outer darkness forever. As He did that, He felt something. And it's captured for us in Matthew chapter 9. It goes like this. Jesus went throughout all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When He saw the crowds... He felt what? Compassion. He felt, when he looked at that, he felt, he felt compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew says. So this wasn't a pretty scene. I don't know how you've imagined this scene where Jesus is looking out on the crowds like, like there's all these... You know, the, I, I think maybe this is how I used to imagine this. There's all these these adorable people who are just like, help, help. They, nobody's helping us. I don't think that's what he saw. I think he, I think it was a, an ugly scene. I think it's the same thing that he saw when he looks into the crowds of New York City. Same same picture. Same thing he sees when he looks in the homes of Westchester County. He sees a cesspool of sinful humanity. Angry people, complaining, thankless, abusive people, selfish people, liars, proud people, diseased people, afflicted people, and helpless people. He sees helpless people. All of us were and are in ourselves fully, entirely, and utterly incapable of saving ourselves. Unable to be anything other than a sinful mass of rebellion. And that's what Jesus saw when he looked at the crowds. It's what Jesus saw when he looked at Israel who had gone into exile. That's what God saw when he looked at our lives. He saw rebellion and futility and alienation and helplessness. 
Did he see a sinful people? Absolutely. Did he see people deserving eternal judgment? Absolutely. But Matthew tells us that he saw also that we were helpless people. And when the high king of heaven and earth sees helpless people, it is his nature to deeply feel compassion for them. It is his nature to feel pity for them. It is his nature to feel mercy for them. It is his nature to feel love for them. And when the compassionate love of God is roused for helpless sinners, you better stand back because he's about to do something about it. Take note. He's about to do something. Remember Hosea 13? I just, I just read this, Hosea 13. It goes like this. They became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me, so I am to them like a lion. He destroys you, O Israel. That's chapter 13. But it's not the end of the story because in chapter 14, we read about what God's intention was for this stubborn and alienated people. Someday, Hosea says, God's compassion will drive him to do something wonderful for those who have turned from him. So listen to what God is going to do to those people that he just said, I am out to destroy you. Here's what God does one chapter later. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. That's a cool picture. I'm going to be like the dew that rests upon the grass to nourish you. It's refreshing. You're going to blossom, Israel. He shall take... He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. That's called resurrection, by the way. Destruction and then new life. They shall return and catch this and dwell beneath my shadow. You're going to dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. We don't deserve to dwell in the house of the Lord. We don't. We don't deserve to rest beneath the shadow of His love and in the joy of His presence, but that didn't stop God from making a way for it to happen anyways. If you don't feel worthy to be in the house of God today, then don't fear. Not only are you in good company, because none of us are worthy to be in the presence of God, but Jesus has made a way. That's the gospel, guys. Jesus has made a way for the alienated to be restored into the presence of God. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, We're not only separated, but we hate him. Or hated him until he did something to us. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's a beautiful progression here. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, What happens? Jesus shows up and through His death now presents us to God holy and blameless. 
O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill, David asks. And the answer is, the one who has been made clean by the death of Jesus Christ. The one who has been presented holy and blameless in the sight of God through the death of Jesus Christ. It's the one who has been presented holy and blameless because of the purifying death of the Son of God for sinners who can now dwell in the house of the Lord. And that's what Holy Week is all about. It's about what God has done to make a way for unholy people like you and me to dwell in the house of the Lord, to be in the presence of God right now and forever. Not because of what we've done, but because the Lamb of God has presented us holy and blameless in the presence of our Father. That's what's happening during Holy Week. Jesus is on his way into the city to cleanse you and to bring you into the presence of God. That's what he's doing as he rides into Jerusalem today. Palm Sunday. I'm on my way to cleanse sinners and bring them back into the presence of God. That's what he's doing as he cleanses the temple tomorrow. Stirs the hatred of the religious leaders. Stirs the the city into this furious crowd of people that want to see him dead. Jesus is on his way to restore you into the house of God as he eats the Passover meal and washes the feet of those who would betray him late Thursday night. That's what Jesus is doing as he's found guilty by a series of six trials between Thursday night and Friday morning. Six trials. Three by the Jews, three Roman trials. The Jewish trials are totally illegal. But he's going to cleanse you, bring you into the house of God. So what he's doing is he's mocked and scourged and dragging a splintered, rugged cross through the gates of Jerusalem Friday morning. And that's exactly what he's doing as he hangs on the cross from about 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. on Friday. So he's crucified by 9 a.m. to make a way for you to dwell beneath the shadow of the Almighty. I just have two points of application this week. And the first one is be mindful to live in the presence of God this week because a a way has been made for you. I, I know you haven't lived up to what David has explained here, and neither have I. So you need to be purified. And if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you are presented holy and blameless in the presence of God. Be mindful to live in that this week. Enjoy the fruit of what Christ has done for you. Draw near to God. Avail yourself of the opportunity to be with Christ, to know Christ, to talk with Christ, to worship your Heavenly Father. One of my favorite passages as I meditate on this idea of being in the presence of God right now is in Hebrews 10. It goes like this. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Ah, so, okay, temple image. Think temple. There's some sense in which there is this invisible temple now. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus through the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. 
So now we, we have stepped into the holy places through the flesh of Jesus. We've been cleansed. The high priest has come in, Jesus Christ. He's offered his blood as a sacrifice. We're in the very presence of God by faith. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Dwell in the midst of the presence of your God this week. Draw near to Him. He has made a way for you. Sin can never, if you belong to Jesus, your sin this past week, as we went through Psalm 15 and all these things maybe came to your mind, you should know there's nothing that takes you outside of the curtain again. You will never be cast out of Eden again once Christ brings you in. But you should know that you can be in the holy places, in the presence of God, and have a breakdown because you're not repenting because you're not trusting. So you can have a relational breakdown and still be positionally fine. What I'm trying to encourage you in this morning is that Christ has made the way into the temple. You can be in the presence of God. If there are things in your life that relationally are broken down, what you need to do is repent of that. Remember that Christ has paid the penalty and enjoy the presence of God this week. The second thing I want to encourage you to do this week is to be mindful to share this news with other people. Because Christians, we hold the words of life. We've been sent by Jesus to share them with other people. This is good news. There are people right now, men, women, children, who are alienated from Christ. Alienated from God. They're outside the temple. They're east of Eden. They've been exiled from the land. God is not dwelling in their life. God is, has His judgment set against them. The good news is that there is a way to come now into the presence of God. I want to read to you the rest of this quotation about the compassion that Jesus has when He looks at the crowds. Listen to this. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Next week is Easter Sunday. That means that you will have great opportunities this week, if you are willing, to have great conversations with all kinds of people about Jesus. Ask people what they, just, you just try this this week. Ask somebody what they do for Easter. What does your family do for Easter? Or ask them, what did your family do growing up for Easter? And just see where the conversation goes. See where it goes. Take that step this week. Oh yeah, we used to go to church. But, hey, do you go to, do you still go to church? Or, nah, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. Oh, why not? Did something happen? I mean, just see where it goes. A great opportunity. Invite somebody to church next week. 
People who don't love Jesus, for some reason, they love to come to church on Easter Sunday. Okay, cool. Bring them. We'll preach the gospel. God will save souls. Invite them over to your house afterwards to dinner. So what did you think about the message? That pastor's really lousy. (laughs) Okay, be mindful this week. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few, but God has sent us into his fields. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that when you looked at our lives, when you saw that we were harassed and helpless, when you saw that we were under the curse, living in this cursed world because of sin, that you felt compassion. And we thank you, Lord, that in your compassion, you sent Christ to die the death that we deserve so that we could gain the life that he deserves. We praise you for this gift of holiness, this gift of blamelessness that you have given to us apart from our merits. It's a total gift. Thank you for counting us righteous so that we could dwell in your presence. The amazing thing about what we've talked about today is is that strangely, those who forsake the attempt of trying to gain righteousness by their own works, those who forsake that, those who then trust in Jesus Christ to provide for them that righteousness, are then enabled to start growing in righteousness. <laughs> it's strange. You, 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 can't, you can't grow in righteousness until you forsake trying to be righteous on the basis of your own works. Only when Christ takes hold of our lives, only when we put our hope in Jesus, do we then say, hey, I forsake all attempts to try and earn some opportunity to dwell in your presence on my own. We, we then are ransomed. And then we have this attitude, Lord, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. We, 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 we surrender the attempt to try to gain a right standing in our own works. And then God starts to use his ransomed people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to start to walk in holiness. Start looking more and more like Jesus. I encourage you to be that kind of Christian this week, one who is forsaking all attempts to earn righteousness and ironically, being a people who grow in righteousness. So may the God who made light shine out of darkness shine into your hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, so that as you behold the Savior and forsake self-righteousness, you might enjoy Him and dwell in the presence of your Creator today, this week, and forever. And all of God's people said,